they, they don't escape. Psalm 2. I want us to look at Psalm 2 um, because, as I said, in the months to come, weeks to come, perhaps months to come, um, I want us to look at the Gospels and ask the question, try to answer the question, what kind of king is King Jesus? What kind of king is he? Um, we, don't, we don't have kings, do we? We have presidents. This is a democracy, right? The people are king. That is a really dangerous thing. I hope you understand that. I mean, I love democracy. It's a wonderful thing. You know what Winston Churchill said about democracy. It's a horrible form of government. It's just better than all the other forms of human government. Uh, the people are king in our situation, and we elect presidents, and, and we're in the midst of one of those cycles of, of, of elections, and, and uh, we're, we're being played to, aren't we? We're being played to. Um, we don't have kings, we have presidents. Other places have prime ministers. Some places do have kings. The point is that we live in a world where there are rulers of one kind or another. And what's so striking to me, what's interesting to me about rulers of one kind or another is that they all promise the same thing, don't they? I mean, bottom line, you cut to the chase, they all promise the same thing. What is it that they promise? With me, it's going to be different. Right? With me, it's going to be different. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. I don't care which side of the aisle you sit on. No, no. The candidates are all saying the same thing. With me, it's going to be different. I've said, I've thought, I think about this frequently, and I've said it several times publicly. I'm so glad I have another king. I'm so glad I have another king, a king who really is different, really and truly is different. Psalm 2, I think, helps us begin to get some handles on the nature of that difference. And uh, out of this passage, out of this very familiar psalm, um, I want to extract three, three points, if you will. Um, three three uh, observations, if you will, which I think you can extract from this psalm that begin to show us the difference. First, there is a description of the world in this psalm. Um, and then there is a response from heaven. And then there is the promise of a king. Uh, there's a description of the world. And then there is the response from heaven. And then there is the promise of a king. And as we, again, in these weeks and months to come, uh, look at the fulfillment of that promise, I believe we're going to see a king who is wildly, wildly different from the kings of this world. First, a description uh, of the world. There are interesting words in these first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The picture is a picture of rebellion, frankly. It's a picture of people casting off authority. Uh, the nation's rage, uh, what does that mean? That's a gr it's a great word. It's one of those words that's just pregnant with pulsating meaning. What does it mean when the nations are raging? Well, the word describes a tumultuous throng, a tumultuous throng. 
um, a, a throng that is seething noisily, seething noisily. It's kind of the picture of a boiling cauldron. You know what a boiling cauldron is? It's a big pot over a fire and there's all kinds of stuff in it and there's a lid on it and it's boiling and the pressure is building up under the lid and it's going to explode out. A seething, tumultuous, boiling cauldron. The second little word in this passage is the word plot. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? In the old King James, the word was imagine. You remember it from from Messiah. If you've heard Messiah, it's sung in the old King James. Why do the peoples imagine a vain thing? It's an interesting word. The word is also used in Psalm 1, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Same word that you find in verse 1 of Psalm 2 that's translated plot. Same word. What does it mean? Well, it means, effectively, it means to meditate on or to talk to oneself about, to take counsel with oneself. It's a word that's used to describe what a cow does. This is true. What a cow does when a cow is chewing its cud. You know how it sort of, mm, it does that sort of thing. It's a word that's used to describe what a lion does after the kill and after the lion has satisfied its hunger on its prey. And it sort of groans, you know. It's this sort of internal groaning and murmuring. And in Psalm 1, it's a delightful thing. The one who is meditating upon the law of the Lord is taking delight in it, consulting with oneself about it, reveling in it, meditating on it, chewing it, digesting it, taking it in. But in Psalm 2, it's a very different picture. It's not a picture of satisfaction. It's not a picture of contentment. It's a different sort of taking counsel together. It's the counsel of rebellion. It's the counsel of throwing off, planning, plotting the overthrow of a government. You see pictures of this, folks, don't you? I mean, think about some of the images that you've seen, that you continue to see in Islamabad, in Tehran, in Gaza City, cities in South America. Streets filled with people, a boiling cauldron of dissatisfaction, a seething tumult of people seeking to cast off some perceived authority, some perceived power. That's the picture that's here. But there's an interesting thing that happens in the second verse. The first verse is a sort of a picture of of the people sort of indiscriminately considered, the nations, if you will, the peoples who are plotting. But then in verse 2, the focus shifts toward the kings. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers 
take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There's an arrestingly, frighteningly relevant description of what goes on in the world in those verses. The people are seeking to throw off all constraints. And the kings, the rulers, are joining in. Why does government exist? You ever think about that? Why does government exist? Let me suggest to you that government doesn't exist because of sin. (laughs) Government exists because God is the supreme governor. And whether there is sin or no, there will always be government. Because God is king and Lord over everything. And God sets the parameters for life in the universe that he has created and that he sustains. But in this fallen world, government does take on some particular features and characteristics. Read Romans 13 just as an example. I'll just reference the passage. Read Romans 13. What you will see in Romans 13 is a summary of what government does in this fallen world. While on the one hand being an expression of the grace of God, we need to get this into our heads. I don't, I don't have it in my head. I don't have it in my heart. I don't really get it. I don't really like it that government and law exist for my good, for my well-being. But government and law exist to glorify God, and for the well-being of those who are being governed. And that is a particularly important thing in this fallen world where government exists, Romans 13, to restrain evil and to promote what is good. Government exists for the common good. But look at what happens in Psalm, in Psalm 2. Not only are the people a sort of boiling cauldron of discontent. Turbulence is mounting. Disquiet is rising. But what is happening here is that kings and rulers, in effect, become opportunists. How can I get elected? What is the unhappiness of the people? I'll exploit it and use it to personal advantage. Not ruling and governing for the well-being of the people, but listening to the people and following the directives of the people. In fact, entering into partnership with the people with the ultimate end that the good and gracious and just and righteous rule of Almighty God is cast off. And so, as I suggested at the beginning, The people, in effect, become king, don't they? The people rule. And the kings and the rulers of the earth simply consult together in view of this massive turbulence to ask, how can we cast off the constraint of Almighty God? Think again of the images that you've seen on the television pictures that you see in newspapers, angry, angry 
roiling tumultuous crowds with machine guns raised above their heads. There isn't a person in this community, well, maybe a few, maybe some, some who either aren't old enough, mature enough, or who are maybe too old to care. I, you know, there are probably some in this community. But I guarantee you there aren't many people in this community who don't care about this, who don't look at the world in which they live and ask questions like, where is this going? Where is it headed? And they become desperate, don't they? They become desperate. They look for hope any place. Barack Obama, Mike Huckabee. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. Out there in the world, those are the choices that people have. And all of them are saying the same thing. With me, it will be different. And folks, we've been on this planet for a long, long time. And why any of us is naive enough to think that a mere mortal fallen human being is going to be the decisive factor with respect to the well-being of the world is to me incomprehensible. The state of the world is what the state of the world has always been. Incredibly precarious because of the roiling tumult of fallen humanity that would cast off the constraints of God. That's a description of the world, if you will. There's a response that comes from heaven. When I think of this, and I I did think of this, thought of this, gosh, I think every time I look at Psalm 2 or other passages that that try to describe the the glory of Christ the King, the glory of God, the the, the limitlessness limitlessness of his power, the, the wonder of his majesty. I think of this little scene in the first of the Chronicles of Narnia where Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy are visiting Mr. Beaver and Lucy learns about Aslan, the lion. And when she hears that he's a lion and hears these descriptions of the lion, she asks the very innocent question, Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds very forcefully and says, what does he say? He says, no, he's not safe. He's the king, I tell you. But he is good. He is good. But he is not safe. Anybody who has the inclination, and we all do, We all do. Every single one of us in this room has this inclination to bring God down. To look at God, as it were, through the wrong end of the telescope. (laughs) To reduce him in size. To shrink him down so as to be able to control him. Any one of us who would make the foolish assumption that you can do that is in for a real surprise. The kings of the earth We're in for a surprise. Listen to the response that comes from heaven. The one seated in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at them. Or again, as the old King James had it, he holds them in derision. 
And then verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. What's the response from heaven? I think if you could summarize it, I'd suggest that you summarize it in this way. Twofold response. On the one hand, there is a kind of stunned disbelief that echoes forth from heaven. A kind of stunned disbelief. The God of heaven laughs. The God of heaven, the commentators note, remains seated upon his throne. He he doesn't get up. (laughs) You know, it's funny. He doesn't rise up to object to this attempted overthrow. He doesn't rise up to assert his rights as king. Right? How do people who are threatened respond when they're threatened? Right? If you hit me, I'll hit you harder. If you take aim at me, I'll take aim back. I will defend myself. I will protect myself. Not only will I do that, I will seek to take you out. God doesn't do that. Doesn't need to do that. God who is enthroned, who is seated in incomprehensible glory, doesn't rise up from his throne. This idea, the idea that a United Nations of rebellious kings and nations, the idea that they actually could dethrone him, that they actually could cast off his control and authority, is simply laughable. It is laughable. Some of you may remember when, this is a year and a half ago now, when we were looking at the covenants and we landed and camped at Genesis 11, we looked at the story of the Tower of Babel, you know, the the people of the world are still united. They have a common language and they have a common purpose. And what's their common purpose? The common purpose is to build this tower that will reach up to the heavens, right? And the text says that God's response to that was to say to himself among the, the heavenly council, let us go down to see this thing that they're doing. Let's go down. Now be very clear about this. God doesn't need to get closer in order to see. He sees everything and he knows everything. It's a pun. Let us go down to see this little bitty thing that these human beings are erecting. Do you know, someone told me recently, this is stunning, someone told me recently that if you were to shrink the globe down to the size of a billiard ball, if you could do that, if you could shrink the earth down to the size of a billiard ball, the surface of the earth would be smoother than the billiard ball. So inconsequential are the mountain ranges and mountains that cover the surface of the globe. Do you get that? So small, so puny, so tiny is Mount Everest. So puny, so small, so tiny is the Andes Range. So small, so tiny, so puny are the Alps that the Earth's surface would actually be smoother than the billiard ball. And if something like that can't be detected, how can a thousand-foot-tall building be detected? The great monuments that we erect to ourselves. You know, when you stand in front 
of a building that is 12 or 1300 feet tall. It's imposing, isn't it? You look up 12 or 1300 feet, it's imposing. You know how long that is? That's 400 yards. That is an easy par four. That's a driver and a half wedge for Tiger Woods. And on some days, downwind, down grain, downhill, it's a tee shot. You lay one of those buildings on its side and you can walk its distance in less than five minutes. What is the response of heaven to the wild imaginations of those who would rise up and seek to cast off God's restraints? It is simply to laugh. Isn't that cute? Except that it isn't cute because it is rebellion. And the second piece of this, which you see reflected throughout these verses, is the remaining response, the second piece of the response of God to this roiling, tumultuous attempt to throw off his righteous, good, just government. Verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in his fury. A little bit farther down, he will break them with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And then the last verse, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. If you're ever going to understand the Bible, if you're ever going to understand Christianity, you have to understand that Lucy was right. She was right to be afraid of Aslan. And Mr. Beaver was right to say to Lucy, you are right to be afraid because he is good. Because he is good. Supremely good. So good. So utterly and entirely good that he simply cannot and because he cannot, he will not allow rebellion to be unquelled. He will not allow injustice to go unaddressed. He will not allow unrighteousness to pass before his eyes without response. And I don't suppose there's anything anywhere in the whole of the scriptures that brings us more directly into connection with the person of Jesus, this very different king, than that fact. Because here's what is so striking about Psalm 2. There is this description of the world. There is this response from heaven. And yet, heaven does not respond in the way described in these verses. Do you ever think about that? The language is jarring. Here is God saying 
through David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he will speak in wrath. He will terrify them in his fury. He will set a king upon Zion, his holy hill. He promises a king. There's the third thing, the promise of a king. And look at what he says. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I've established you as a king. I will make the nations your heritage. I will make the ends of your earth your possession. You will be the king. You will rule them. You will govern them with a rod of iron and you will smash them to pieces. This is so arresting. When the king comes, how does he come? We're on the other side of the cross here looking back at Psalm 2. We're on the other side of the cross looking back at Psalm 2. The Psalms are filled with these notions of God's holiness and righteousness, his kingship, his goodness, his determination to put things to rights. The idea of the kingdom of God is a central feature of the scriptures. Matthew uses the phrase more than 50 times in his gospel. The apostle Paul, if you look at the last few verses of Acts chapter 2, the apostle is under house arrest in Rome, the capital city of human civilization at that time, arguably. And in those last verses, Paul under house arrest for two years preaches The kingdom of God. But how does the king come when he comes? Does he come smashing the nations to bits? Does he come pouring out his wrath on this roiling, tumultuous crowd? Does he come with an iron scepter breaking pottery to bits? He doesn't, does he? When he comes, he comes as a king in weakness, in humility, and he comes not to destroy the nations, but he comes to save the nations. He comes to redeem the nations. He comes to deliver the nations. The Father stays the final day of judgment so that the Son may come in weakness and humility, not to destroy, but to be destroyed. So that any who come to this King might, as the psalm says, find Him to be a refuge. Blessed are all who kiss the Son, who embrace the Son, who take hold of the Son and find Him to be a refuge. What is this King like? We could spend a whole year, we may spend a whole year looking at gospel passages that describe what this King is like. But this King comes to give a widow's dead son Back to the widow, the widow of Nain. This king comes not to banish the leper from among healthy people. This king comes to restore 
and heal the leper. This king comes and he is different from every other king. Well, you just never know what's going to happen on Sunday morning. (laughs) So in these weeks to come, I want to encourage you to keep that question in your minds. What kind of king is this? King Jesus. Let's pray together. Thank you, Dick. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you're different. That though there is this tumult of rebellion, which we see so evidently on our television sets and in our newspapers, which we hear reported from all over the world, this rebellion which, frankly, we know to be roiling in our own souls. When you come into the world, praise be to God, you don't come to destroy. You come to rescue. You come to save. You come to restore. You come to forgive. You come to cleanse. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are able to look back at the cross and see that the day of judgment has been visited upon you so that we might be forgiven and be set free. We thank you, Jesus, that you are a different kind of king. And we pray in your name. Amen. Let me have you stand and sing with me, number 164. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing in concert with one leaf-blowing apparatus. 164.